This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. It's been 66 years since Ishiro Honda introduced us to a monster lizard the size of a skyscraper. Back in 1954, Godzilla was an allegory for nuclear holocaust. But after 32 different films intertwined with a lot of tumultuous human history, Godzilla has become a stand-in symbol for all sorts of disasters. But one of the thematic elements that has remained in almost every Godzilla film over the course of each movie is that the decisions people make to fight the monster become just as much a source of risk and conflict as the monster itself. And that's true in two real-world crises that present a threat to human life as we know it. One has been with us for quite some time. It was back in 1896 that a Swedish scientist named Esvanti Arrhenius first introduced the world to the idea that the gaseous products of burning coal could trigger a warming of our atmosphere. Although back then it was thought that this might be a good thing, especially for agriculture. Well, more than 120 years later, we've learned a lot more about human-caused global warming, But scientists are still in a fight against notions that, you know, maybe it's just not that big of a deal. And that's the same fight that scientists and public health officials have been waging when it comes to the COVID-19 crisis. From the very beginning, there have been plenty of people who've said it's just not that big of a deal. And 400,000 global deaths later, that's still a common belief. We're probably not going to change anybody's mind about climate change or COVID-19 today. But what we are going to do is talk about what virologists can learn from climate scientists when it comes to communicating with a skeptical public and what climate scientists have been learning from virologists during this pandemic. Barry Margulies is an expert in molecular virology at Townsend University, where he teaches classes in virology and the microbiology of infectious diseases. He's long been concerned about improving the way virologists communicate with the public, and he's joining us on the line from Maryland. Barry, I'm glad you could be here today. Thank you. Just 15 minutes south of Towson University, you'll find Johns Hopkins, and that's where Gary Kettner researches viral gene expression in vaccines and where he teaches courses on the intersection of biological research and public health. Gary, thank you for being here today. Thanks for the invitation. Good afternoon. And now we're going to move from Maryland to Colorado, where Holly Oliveres is a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow who studies the exchange of CO2 between the oceans and the atmosphere, and who spent quite a lot of the past few months talking about the connections between communicating climate change and COVID-19. Holly, welcome. Thank you, Matthew. Glad to be here. And also joining us from Colorado is one of our very favorite guests, Danielle Lemon. They first joined us back in June of 2019 to talk about the diversity of El Nino events worldwide and have been a guest several times on our monthly Science News Roundup programs, which we temporarily suspended during the pandemic, but which we're hoping will be back very soon. Something is different with Danielle this time around, though, and it is my great pleasure to congratulate you on your recent thesis defense. Dr. Lemon, welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much. Great to be here. Let me start today with Holly, who very quickly into the COVID pandemic said, hey, you know what? There are some connections here that we need to be talking about, some connections between what's happening as people are struggling and and striving to communicate about COVID and what climatologists have been struggling 
and striving to communicate for a really long time. Holly, what was the thing that initially prompted you to draw those connections? I already had multiple scheduled talks to talk about climate change and communicating climate change to our family and friends. With the pandemic, suddenly everyone's interest and attention was focused away from my topic of climate change and onto COVID-19. And so I decided to revise my talk to find the connections between climate change and COVID-19, which there are many principles that overlap between the two. And so it didn't take a lot of effort to revise my talk in order to do that, but it certainly did make a difference in um, the content of the talks that were already scheduled. They were moved from in-person to um, virtual talks, but I was able to give them to various audiences and certainly had diverse audiences and great conversation because COVID-19 was on everyone's mind, including mine. And so that proved to be productive. Gary, I wanted to ask, you've known for a long time that the public's understanding of virology and epidemiology isn't where it needs to be. Was the denialism and science rejection that we've seen in the face of the COVID pandemic sort of inevitable in your assessment? No. I mean, maybe it's inevitable. I don't know. I'm floored. It seems uh, completely unreasonable to me to, you know, to deny the issues surrounding COVID-19. And so, I mean, I was I was taken completely aback. I had never even begun to think about the possibility that I would have to convince people that these sorts of things were real. Uh, so I'm at a loss as to, you know, as to how to proceed, really. What about the rest of you? Did it feel like a event like this, an acute event? Because I know the climatologists among us have known for a long time about how pervasive science denialism is, but I'm, I'm wondering if it felt like we were just overdue for sort of an acute event of science denialism. So when the anti-intellectual movement was escalating around COVID-19, I was shocked, but not necessarily surprised. And that's because basically manufactured faux news. It is and has been a long time phenomena in the climate science communities. We've known that there are powerful actors who will actively undermine public information for their own benefit. And the thing is that the U.S. citizens in particular have been primed for years now to have their scientific literacy undermined. So it's really not that we just need to kind of educate everybody and get everybody on the same page. And then the U.S. democracy will reflect that change in perception. It's really that if we're going to fight anti-intellectualism and address scientific illiteracy, we have to go straight to the source, which is that there are malicious bad actors out there who put out purposefully damaging information. Um, you know, in the climate science community, that's the case with the fossil fuel companies. And in the COVID pandemic, I think that there are many actors who are politically benefiting from people not understanding the realities of these two invisible threats. Part of the thing that makes it so hard to explain what is going on with COVID and climate is that they are invisible. They're not like some saber toothed tiger that somebody can logic out and inform some sort of risk perception. These two ideas are somewhat abstract and invisible, and they make it much harder for you to convince people who 
don't want to believe you. Gary, what do you think? I had a reaction to two things. The first is there is a big difference in the way I regard climate change and COVID-19 as, you know, as, uh, you know, as public relation, there's public information issues. Climate change is exceedingly subtle. I don't know very many people who've experienced things which are dramatically associated with climate change. COVID-19 is very different. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have died. And I think all of us probably know people who have either been sick or have been involved in involved in the effort to prevent uh, you know, the spread of the pandemic. So, uh, so I have to say that the, the two situations don't strike me as being very much alike. One of them's something that's going to happen in the future. The disastrous effects will occur in the future. Uh, the other one is one a situation in which the disastrous uh, effects are happening right now. So, um, you know, so I, I, I guess I disagree with the notion that those two things are, are similar, at least in that way. There are certainly effects that people are experiencing that are very acute from climate change, though, that maybe are not getting the attention. I mean, they're acute in different parts of our world than, than COVID is. Without keeping your focus on how climate change is impacting everyone now, then certainly I can understand how Gary would feel that that connection is not there between COVID-19 and climate change. But more than hundreds of thousands of people have died from climate change already. It is happening around the world. It's happening in the United States. But what we're seeing is that in the, in the United States, people aren't talking about climate change, and they're not seeing the connection of how climate change is impacting them in their daily life now. And so that in itself is part of the problem, but it is happening now, and it is serious. It is urgent. And just because you can't sort of deem that this person died from climate change, right? You can do that in the case of COVID. Somebody died from COVID or complications from COVID, et cetera. But in the case of climate change, you actually have to assess its acuteness and its impact in different ways because it's not like climate can kill a person, but a hurricane certainly can or some sort of natural disaster or being displaced or exacerbated geopolitical conflict. So while the idea of climate change impacting lives is certainly more abstract and a little removed from basically the Western privileged world, um, it is certainly acute and impacting people already. And I actually think that the notion that it's something that will happen in the future and isn't something that's happening now is somewhat damaging to people's assessment of it as a threat because they dismiss it as a future threat rather than a present one. And it, as Holly mentioned, it is very present. Barry, in early May, the climatologist Elizabeth Sawin tweeted a note of camaraderie for fellow scientists who were confronting the challenge of a very skeptical world, what one where people people's lives were on the line and a lot of people were refusing to believe it. She wrote in a very short tweet, she wrote, Dear epidemiologists, we feel for you, love climate scientists. As virologists are suddenly being called upon to communicate what they do to a world that really does need to know what they do, are there lessons that can be learned from the climate science community? Yeah, I was reminded a long time ago about sort of the way that scientists in general think and operate versus the way the rest of the world operates. So typically, if there is an issue that is quote unquote debatable, and in my particular field, 
there's an issue about how one particular virus interacts with its host cell. So I don't want to get into the details there. Nonetheless, as a debate to try to figure it out, the parties on each side of that particular fence, each one presents their evidence and each side sort of evaluates the evidence. And at some point, both groups, it might take years, they come to a consensus on what is really happening biologically. What I didn't realize in my background, I guess, is that this kind of thing doesn't necessarily work when you're dealing with people's feelings and core belief systems. So if I were to present my particular set of pieces of evidence in why this particular viral outbreak is a big deal, and I were presenting it to other scientifically trained individuals, they might look at the evidence, would evaluate it, and then they would determine what was happening, what the best course of action might be. But what I've seen happen to climatologists, even though the evidence is there that 97% of scientists agree that climate change is a real thing, all of a sudden it's not a factual thing anymore in the general public and the way things are being spun. It's an opinion thing. And what we've learned in these times is that offering your viewpoints as a set of facts is not a way to change someone else's outlook. I guess the bottom line is, as scientists who want to be able to communicate with the public, we need to change the way we message if we want people to understand and believe what we're saying and get with the program, as it were. Danielle and Holly, you guys have both been working for quite some time to solve problems like this. How do you convince people who are hearing messages that might not be accurate about your science that your science is sound? Danielle, can you try to tackle that first? Yeah, it's a really difficult question to answer, and I am somewhat frustrated with it at this point um, because I don't think that we should be asking climate scientists to communicate better. I think that that is, um, it is a way in which this manufactured sort of fake news is undermining the discourse so much that scientists are stuck trying to convince people of invisible threats that they know to be true. And it takes a lot of our energy away from dealing with the larger systemic issues that are causing the symptoms of anti-intellectualism. So basically, my take on this is that, yes, of course, we need to have the best available communication. Yes, of course, we need to make it more accessible to the public and easy to understand. But to spend all of our energy on that is not necessarily better than spending our energy on science policy, on political advocacy. And the issue is that Scientists are so often discouraged from becoming political or getting too political. And to even say the words global warming or to say the words mask is to make yourself political in this climate. And so the way that this invisible manufactured faux news guides our behavior and guides our dialogues is actually not just affecting anti-quarantine protesters. 
It's affecting protesters and academics alike in that we are stuck and stalled on this conversation of how to communicate better and how to get this to the public easier. There are diminishing returns on how much better we can communicate this stuff while also battling the constant, non-ending stream of disinformation. So I am a lifelong communicator and not a lifelong scientist. And I actually joined the scientific community because of climate change, because I was concerned, alarmed, and wanted to do something about it. But I also wanted to understand it for myself. And knowing that I'm a lifelong communicator, that as I was learning it, I would find ways to communicate it. And so I'm very interested in this topic. One thing I'm going to say, and I forgive me, I can't remember if it was Gary or Barry who mentioned it, but is that people do not make decisions based on data and facts. And I'm not here because of data and facts. We make decisions because of our connection to whatever the situation is. And so really what it comes down to is how does this affect me? And COVID-19, the circumstance of COVID-19 and the timing is a perfect analogy for climate change in that people changed their lifestyles so quickly. And they did that because everyone was talking about it. And not everyone was sure about it. And people were more confused than they knew the facts. And most of us are still in that position. But we still have made huge changes in our lifestyles because of it, because everyone is talking about it. And in the case of climate change, people are simply not talking about it. And so this is where we're at as a community, I believe, as a worldwide community, where we have to think and work in an interdisciplinary fashion where we're working with sociologists and psychologists and climate scientists and virologists so that we can take the knowledge that we've gained from the information and share that knowledge to those that better understand how do we present this in a fashion that is productive and effective and prompts people to make changes in their lives. Barry Holly just used one of my favorite words in the world. She used the word interdisciplinary. And if that's one of the solutions, if the part of the solution is that it's not just virologists talking about COVID-19, it's not just immunologists, it's psychologists and social scientists and, and climate scientists for that matter. Does that help? I think it's an excellent take, and I don't think it should be limited to COVID-19. I've often toyed with the thought, one of my colleagues at another university teaches a class in AIDS, and she's a virologist, and she co-teaches it with a psychologist, a nurse, a sociologist, a history professor, to get sort of this more global look at how HIV and AIDS has affected society and the world at large. Maybe that's where we need to be in our communicative ability when it comes to this particular illness. I want to circle back real, real briefly to something Gary said about one of the things that we use as scientists is not just explaining what we know, but how we know or why we know what we know. And the whole thing sort of comes back to the science denialism that there's this feeling that's sort of per pervasive in a lot of the public now that um, just because you are a quote unquote expert, who made you an expert? Why does it matter how you know what you know or why you know what you know? We don't care. Your voice means nothing. And that's, that's kind of upsetting in the grand scheme of things. Gary, does it feel a little hopeless sometimes? Has it over the last few months, have you 
watched this situation, this pandemic unfold and the response to the pandemic, not just the disease itself, which is terrifying, but the response to the disease, has it made you feel a little hopeless? And and after... No, it has not made me feel hopeless. Uh, and the reason for that, I think, is that the solution to the COVID pandemic is... Um, uh, you know, is is in fact probably going to be uh, achieved sometime in the next couple of years. And, you know, the people who were speaking truth are going to be recognized and the people who were, who were not are going to be called out on it. Um, so th- this is probably going to be over and the good guys are probably going to win. I mean, I think the climate scientists are in a, in a much more difficult position because I don't, I don't think either of those outcomes is obvious yet. Barry, before we go to those climate scientists, how about you? Are you feeling optimistic about our ability to convince a skeptical public of that scientists are doing a pretty decent job with what they're doing? Or are you feeling pessimistic about that right now? I'm optimistic at those who have sought to get answers and not just from me and not just from Gary, but from other professionals. And I'm optimistic about those who've been listening to Dr. Fauci and others who are really in the know, but possibly unlike Gary, at times I have gotten frustrated with individuals, not groups, who have continued to throw mud and I just, I give up. Um, Because once it starts becoming what feels like mudslinging, I I just back off because I don't feel that that's relevant or useful or, I don't know, I I just don't want to wallow down there with those individuals. And Daniel, that's, I kind of hear, I think that's sort of what you're saying is that to some extent you have to, I don't know what the right analogy is, cut bait on the people who aren't going to listen and really worry about not just the communicative aspect of it, but really assess and analyze and think about what the best use of your resources are. Is that right? And given that, do you think that we are starting to move that direction or, or are you feeling pessimistic that we're not? I feel really optimistic that we are going to solve humanity's problems. I truly, I believe, (laughs) I believe in, in our human ability to connect and come together and solve problems when we really need to. But I will say that it's actually the culmination and escalation of the entire political discourse in this country that makes me hopeful for that. At the time of this recording, there are obviously major protests happening nationwide over justice for George Floyd. I don't think that we should, you know, avoid that subject that there are some studies from social sciences that suggest you only need 3.5% of a population actively protesting to enact wide-sweeping political changes. And the fact is that in order to solve climate change, we will need wide-sweeping political changes. So there is a lot going on right now, and that's not to say that you know justice for George Floyd is connected to climate change, but in a very real sense, the escalation of political discourse in this country is showing us that we're having the hard conversations and that we will ultimately come out in a better world. Holly, do you think that we're heading toward that better world, that that's a world that we may be seeing in the near future when it comes to climate change. Yes. When we look at the the graph that shows the worldwide number of cases of COVID-19, and there's kind of like this steady flat line and then a sudden sweeping curve. It's a logarithmic curve, but 
Um, I, I believe that our efforts are the same when it comes to climate change, that we're slow and steady, and then suddenly we're going to see great change in a short amount of time. I will say I am pessimistic when talking about what we're going to see in our lifetime as consequences of our rapidly changing climate, that we haven't made large-scale changes yet. But I'm optimistic about the human effort, as Danielle said, that um, when we have to do something, we do it. <laughs> uh, we are creatures of nature. And from what I have witnessed and learned about how Earth works, nature takes the path of least resistance, and so do humans. But when we have to do something, we do it. And so, yeah, I, I'm going to steal a phrase from climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, who says she's cautiously hopeful. And I, I like that. We're just about out of time. Barry Margulies, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was a great opportunity. And um, I've actually personally learned a lot, and I'm coming away with a much more positive attitude to the future, believe it or not. And Gary Kettner, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And I've enjoyed this enormously. It's been very interesting. And Holly Oliveras, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. And I appreciate you saying that, Barry. Definitely a good conversation. And Danielle Lemon, a pleasure as always. <laughs> Before I jump off, I just want to affirm three things. Uh, climate change is real. Black lives matter. And happy pride. Happy pride. Thank you, Danielle. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>